Read along with me if you would, please, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? If Abraham were justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does the blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Well, how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith in which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that, unri- that, I'm sorry, that righteousness may be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but are also of the, who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise, excuse me, <clears throat> that he would be heir to the world, of the world was not to Abraham and to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, well then faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath from where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not imputed for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, it was not written for his sake alone, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege tonight of being able to sit in this cool room where it's safe. We are not in any great threat of any enemy army coming in here and attacking us because of our faith. And perhaps that's one of the dangers here is that we're so comfortable that that could become our foe. We could be so caught up in being so comfortable that being challenged out of that complacency and placidity to a place of greater front-line work could be something that's a threat to us. And yet, Lord, we really want today to be more than just a comfortable uh, group of people who are happy to not go to hell. We want to be an army. We want to be a team. We want to be a family that takes on the family trade. And Jesus, you told us that you've come to seek, to serve, and to save, Lord, the lost, the last, the least. And if that's our family business, Lord, I would pray, as we look throughout so many scriptures and we see a father doing something so well and then the children not following in his footsteps, and then in feeling that sense of indignation, Lord, towards Samuel's kids because of their behavior. I pray the same for us, that we would have that indignation as your children if we would not follow in your footsteps. But light a fire in us to do that which you've called us to tonight. 
And as we seek to learn more about You, teach us, Lord, for the purpose of setting it into action. Let there be no shoeless information tonight. No information simply for the tickling of our minds, but rather, Lord, for the inspiring of our souls and the bolstering of our faith. So, Lord, have Your way now, I pray. Minister to us. Lord, for those that are in need, meet them there. For those that are in need of being challenged, challenge us. For those, Lord, that are growing and already in the right trajectory, Lord, continue to encourage and fortify and and acknowledge those things in our hearts, Lord, so we would know. And tonight, Lord, may Your Word burst open and come alive and may we have so much fun in Your Word tonight. Minister to us now, I pray, by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Immerse me, come upon me, that You would do through me what we cannot, what I could not humanly do. Speak to every one of us individually where we need to hear You tonight as well as corporately as a family. We commit this to You now and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, don't just believe me. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. Now we approach a part of Scripture that is fundamental for a, uh, for a legal document. I remind you, there are two churches Paul did not have a personal experience with. That's the church in Rome and the church in Colossae. Two churches he did not plant. Of the 13 letters that are clearly given written by Paul, of those 13, two of them were written to churches that he had not planted. The other 11, on the other hand, personally, that he has, well, one of them is a personal letter to Philemon, but they're all that he has a personal relationship with the recipient. This he does have a personal relationship with a handful of people. We'll see that at least 29 of them. we see that at the end of the, of the, uh, the book. However... He's writing to a group of people. He's not correcting a bunch of doctrinal problems because, to be honest, he doesn't have that experience with them. What he does have, though, is this experience to know that there is a church out there somewhere that he wants to make sure they have the right Jesus. Now, understand, this is basically now written to the legal center of the entire known civilized world, where the laws come from. So this is basically... Paul, a letter to Downey Street. That's the idea here. And he really wants to make sure we get some things clear. And that's why we tend to like the book. If you're kind of an A-type personality, you like black is black, white is white, and here it is, this is going to be a book you'll fall in love with because it's basically it's a legal document. We would call it the Constitution of Christianity. In our first section, chapters 1 and 2, we have the area focusing on sin. And the simplest aspect of sin is quite simple. Either you are churched or unchurched, religious or unreligious from your upraising. If you were unreligious, God says you're still without excuse because God's made Himself clear through His own creation. He's testified inside you. If you are religious, you have the law and that holds you accountable and doesn't make you righteous but shows you you're not. By the time you're done, chapters 1 and 2 make really clear to us whether you were raised in a religious environment or whether you were raised in an unreligious environment. Either way, you will be stuck with a need inside of you, an appetite, a hunger to be made right with God because something inside of you knows you're not right. And every religion out there banks on the fact you assume something's not right between you and God and you need to get right. Chapters 1 and 2 just make simple and clear that every human being is a sinner. People say, oh, that's old-time religion. And I would say, duh. It's as old as the first fallen man because the need has always been the same. Chapters 3 through 5, the area we're in now, takes us to our second section. Chapters 1 and 2 again, salvation. Chapters 3 through 5 now, salvation. I'm sorry, first 1 through one and 2, sinners. Sorry, sinners. Chapters 3 through 5, salvation. Now we go, well, now that we recognize we're a sinner, how do we get saved? How can we be rescued from it? Chapter 3 made really clear that everybody, that the need was universal... There's no one righteous, no not one, because God's standard is perfection, and thus no human being in and of himself has the ability to stand before God and say, give me what I deserve and expect salvation. That's chapter 3. But it says in 323, 
that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. In chapter 3, he also shows us that there is a way that is outside of our performance. And that way is, and the word grace in its simplest sense means gift. That God has a gift to offer every, every, every human being who will receive it. And that gift is a gift of grace. Well, grace just means a gift. It is the gift of salvation, the gift of life, the gift of innocence that a man cannot earn. That's chapter 3. He says no one seeks after God. He says their mouths, their throats, their tongues, bad news. The good news is God is not looking for good people. God is a savior of all men because all men is bad. So chapter 3 makes clear in the beginning of our section on salvation, God likes to save sinners And if you recognize you're a sinner, well, then you recognize God could be your Savior. There is no other religion out there that offers you that option. Everything else is about your performance. You might like the way it feels, but in the end of it all, nobody can save you but your Savior. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4 now because it is a legal document, gives us the same thing that we see in every righteous legal jurisprudence called the law of precedent. What the law of precedent means is has this already been demonstrated? Has it already been articulated? Has it already been established before this point? Or is this a brand new idea that we have to try to figure out how to re-engage an entirely new religion because it's a brand new idea? And that becomes the problem with every other religion as well. There isn't this series of prophecies. This isn't the series of precedent that says, I want to warn you, 500 years from now, a guy's going to come being born half of a woman, half of an elephant. Wait for him. Or I want to warn you, there's a guy going to come up another 500 years from now and he's going to come from one place and he's going to kill a whole bunch of people and everyone's going to worship. You can, you know, now, might I say there are actually prophecies about false prophets, so you can decide on that yourself. But in regards to the law of precedent, we only really have one place where that's established and that's here. Here's the point of this. God wanting to give you the gift of salvation... Is that something that was established before this point or a brand new idea? Now, if it is a new idea, you can understand the people that say, well, we're a New Testament church. Have you ever heard anyone say that? We're a New Testament church. Well, we only believe what's in the New Testament because the Old Testament, that was an old grumpy God. He's mean and nasty with a big long beard and so forth. And there are some churches, they go way out there and they'll say, we don't have um, instruments Because we're a New Testament church. And because we know that instruments are in in the Old Testament, but they're not in the New Testament. I say, well, but do you have toilets? Because in the Old Testament, like Saul went to relieve himself, there were clearly toilets. But in the New Testament, we don't read anywhere that anyone ever went to the toilet. Well, And I'm not trying to be crude, but you kind of get the idea. This is what happens when you get that nutty. This chapter nails down the fact that the Bible from beginning to end is one story, and that God from the beginning to end is the same guy. Because it says, well, let's take a look at precedent. If this whole idea, because in this church in, in Rome, there appears to be, though, a bunch of people who are Jewish, that's part of what they are, is they're circumcised as a result of that. And as a result of that, them thinking they have the inside scoop on God because of that. Hey, you don't have to do that just there. Go to a Greek Orthodox church and not be Greek and see if you have an inside scoop. Go to the Roman Orthodox church and try not to be Roman and see how that plays out. Go to the Roman Catholic church and see what happens if you're an American. Go to the Church of England and try to be American in some cases. And the only reason I say that is, if it really were about something other than Jesus, somebody will always have the inside track. If it wasn't because with Jesus it's a gift. If it isn't about a gift, it's about some kind of performance. If it was about being smart, then smart people would have the inside track. And that was the whole Gnostic thinking. If it was about being disciplined, 
some people are naturally more disciplined or more control freaks or whatever the case would be than other people. For which then they'd have the inside track. If it was about just being nice and good, those that were raised in a religious home may very well have the inside track. The cultists would have the inside track. But if it's a gift, universally we're all on the same plane. And that's the point. So if you will, consider it a court case. And here it is, Paul is now the attorney. And there's our stand. And Paul is calling you as the jury of your heart to observe the information. So you are the juror. The person who has to pass the judgment in your heart. Because if Paul has what he wants and thus God has what he wants in this chapter, you will leave here tonight convinced that this God is the only God and He's the same God from Genesis to Revelation. Not grumpy guy that somehow was bipolar and became nice by the time he came to Jesus. And so he says, Can I call to this stand our first witness in this area of precedent? May I call please Abraham? And the jury goes, oh, and the crowd goes, oh, Abraham. Now for for my goodness sakes, Abraham, now that's the guy. So Abraham comes up here and he sits on the stand. Do you solemnly swear? I'm Abraham. Do I really have to swear? Okay. Okay. And he says, Abraham, let's review a bit of your past, will you? Because according to Scripture, God has some really lovely things to say about you. For instance, might I just say, in the book of Isaiah, God actually calls you his friend. How cool is that? Wouldn't you love God to call you his friend? Oh, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say that in the Gospel of John? I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Think about that. Abraham, on the other hand, Isaiah 41 says, Oh, my servant Jacob, who I have chosen the descendants of Abraham, my friend. James will tell us that in 2.23 to remind us. Abraham, for what it's worth, originally called Abram, uh, Abraham, we mentioned 50 times, Abraham by name, 231 different verses. Abraham, could you tell us a little bit of your story? Because God declared you righteous. In other words, God says, as far as I'm concerned, Abraham's right with me. No, no, okay. Now, up to that point, we don't necessarily have anyone that God said that about. Now, we do know that, for instance, Noah found favor with the Lord. That's really great. But when God just openly says, Hey, everyone in the world, this guy's right with me. You should be an expert to some degree on righteousness, don't you think? Sure, sure, sure. Well, what would that look like? Can we go back to a little bit of your story then? Sure, sure. Let's hear your testimony. Well, (laughs) follow me on this. First of all, let's go take a look at a particular place. Turn in your Bibles all the way to the left to the book of Genesis chapter 15. Coming from California, can I just say, praise God that we have in London people who make fresh juice. Ah. Genesis 15, read the first six verses with me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram and said, and Abram in a vision, and said, Don't be afraid. Well, after what things? Abram had just gathered together the men in his house to go rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive. This particular guy had over 300 men that were raised in this house just for battle. That tells you the size of Abraham's household, Abram at the time. And with that, he goes and he rescues these guys, and he's met afterwards by two individuals, one the king of Sodom and the other Melchizedek, the king of Salem. The king of Salem, by the way, comes out with bread and wine, And Abram gives him a tenth of everything he's gotten back in spoils. The second guy, the king of Sodom, says, Hey, come on, let's work out a deal. He says, Look, take everything that's yours. I don't want anyone to ever say, You made me rich. And that's what he gets done with. So he had just gone and he had kicked some serious rear end. But, you know, after a fight like that, if if you've ever been in fights like that and you know that sometimes that doesn't close the deal, you could get more scared on the other side of it because you realize they may rally an army and come back. 
So after that, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, or Abram in a vision, and said, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? Now from chapter 12, God had given him a promise that he would be a father. From chapter 12. So that's three chapters ago. He was roughly 75, at least God made clear, when he left that area. And he says, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, the one born in my house is my heir, which would be his oldest servant, that would be Eleazar. <coughs> Excuse me. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one will come from your own body that will be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you were able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted him for righteousness. Here's our first text. Abram has left his house at 75 in the land of Ur, which is basically is where the Gulf War took place several years ago, near sort of north of Yemen. And he had gone and he had left and taken this over a thousand mile, or nearly 2,000 kilometer journey up north and up around, up through Syria and then down into the area of Israel, down into Egypt and back up. And in all of that particular trip, there's been some pretty radical things. Now, he's sort of on the journey at this point. And, and, and at this point, God had already given him, you know, the promise. It's been a while now, like any of us. The promise isn't the problem. And we can demonstrate faith when God says, I'll give it to you. It's time that makes it rough. Because often, if you learn, God seldom tells us when. He says, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to deliver you from that sin. I'm going to get you out of the situation. I'm going to heal this situation with you. I'm going to make you a mighty warrior. I'm going to make you an amazing servant. I'm going to make you fruitful. And you go, awesome. Now? And God goes, soon. And you're like, soon by my terms or your terms. Because I've learned those are different. God says, I've got some work to do on you still. If you became as fruitful as I have planned for you right now, you would be so full of yourself, I'd have to battle you for the credit. And I don't want to do that. Oh, okay. Here's the fun part. If God's going to prepare us in such a way, if He did it the quick way, it would be so painful that sometimes out of love He does it slowly, but we want Him to do it quick and painlessly. Good luck with that. But he's never early, but he's never late. So in chapter 15, he's already trying to figure out how to help God out. And he's like, okay, you'll be the father of many nations. I kind of get the idea of that. And, and, and he goes, well, you know what? There was a, and, and technically, listen, listen, listen. Technically, the moment you have to play that game with God, you're already helping him out. You're in a bad place. And you're going, technically, if there was a slave born in your house, you could take that slave, put him on your wife's knees, and that, that slave's child could be considered adopted and thus a child of your household. Not of your gene pool, but adopted. And God was big on adoption. He's always been. So Abram's trying to bargain with God. And he goes, well, you know, really, to be honest, there was this one, the oldest one born in my house. Pretty good candidate, don't you think? And God says, no. Because that makes too much sense. Let's wait a little longer. You started at 75. That didn't make any sense. It was improbable, but it wasn't necessarily impossible. Let's wait till we get to that point. And you're like, I don't like it when it gets to that point. I want the miracle. I just don't want to be put in the place where I have to have it. So here's Abraham telling you the story. This is chapter 15, mind you. What chapter is this? Thank you. Oh, there's more than four of you. What chapter is this? 15. Thank you. It's chapter 15. And this is what God... Abraham says, how about this guy? And he goes, no, somebody from your own loins, someone from your own body is going to be the heir. And then God says, come on outside with me. And here's Abraham giving testimony to you. So I went outside. And there it was. Stars beyond the counting. And God said... You can count those, you can count your kids. And I said, All right, I believe you. And God says, Now you're right with me. Are you with me on that? Go two more chapters to the right, chapter 17.
chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, stop. It's funny already, isn't it? It's one thing when God tells you, I mean, let's, let's just be honest. If you were 75 years old and God said he had any plan for you, it would be pretty amazing in our current culture, isn't it? It's wonderful. You're not that old yet, are you? <laughs> there you go. One thing we can learn from Abraham just because you're older does not mean God isn't about to roll up his sleeves and do his best work yet. At 75, it's a little nutty. God said, I have a plan for you. Now, by the way, if you read the text, it doesn't necessarily say God told him at 75. It's just that he left at 75. He could have told him earlier. But one thing's for sure, that at least by that age he was told. That's 24 years ago. Do the math. Allie, where were you 24 years ago? You were California. How old were you? Oh, you probably don't have to say. You were three. Naomi. You were four. So you two could have been battling over play pens. You could have had pram races. Think about where you were 24 years ago. Could God have given you any promise that long ago that you would still, at this point, still say, probably, it's coming soon. It's coming soon. And I'm not going to try to be crass, but I'd like you to realize something here. This particular promise requires more than one person's involvement. Now, please understand, I'm only saying this because I really believe it's really important for the text. But it doesn't say that God put a baby in Sarah. And I want you to realize, if you've ever been around a woman who's had difficulty with pregnancy... Let's make it worse. Somebody who's been trying. Do you really think they started trying to have a baby at 75? Do you really think that was when they said, it would be really good if we had a baby? My biological clock has stopped ticking. How many years do you think they've been trying? And here's the problem. And please, I want to put, because this is the part that really reaches into me as a husband. Is God going to tell this guy at 99, I haven't forgotten this. Now's, now's the time. I would imagine by this point, it probably would, would have been out of Abraham's thing. And there is a really weird, unsettled book on your shelf. The book that said, this was a promise God said that's never come to pass. And if you have anything like that sitting on your shelf, you know how disturbing that is. When he says abundant life, and you're like, I don't think this is abundant. When he talks about freedom and you're like, I don't feel very free. And you know that's a promise that's sitting on a shelf somewhere and, and you don't get how that doesn't relate to you. Do you see what I'm saying? How about the one you're going to be a daddy? What in the world? And so God says, hey, bro, um, now's the time. But he doesn't sit down Abram and Sarah. Just Abram. And Abram has to look at his wife. Do you have any idea how many tears this poor woman must have cried through the years? And again, please forgive me, but like every time it hits that time of the month, she just falls to pieces because she knows that means there's no baby. And he has to look at her and say, Honey, we got to give this one more try. That's faith. Because I'll be honest. If it were just me, that would be so much easier than me to look into the face of my wife and say, I know this has been really, really, really painful. But the Lord says no. And that, that's really rough. And to make it better yet, his wife's name is contentious. <laughs> Have a nice day with that. Chapter 17, verse 1. And there's, okay, you want to make it even weirder? Listen to this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. By the way, did you notice it doesn't just say he spoke to him? 
but he appeared. That means Abram saw and said to him, I'm, God, I'm Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face. And at 99, that might be fairly easy. And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I made you the father of many nations. From blessed father, Abram, to father of multitudes, Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. The kings and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I will give you your descendants and your descendants after you, the land in which you are a stranger, the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abram, Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your ge- their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of their foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, boy, isn't this just an easy thing for a pastor that gets to teach to a mixed crowd? You know, if this were a men's conference, we'd go into detail and there would be no good, it it would be rough, it would be rougher. But it's rough in this sense. Imagine if God told Annie, Annie, I'm going to make you a great pianist. 24 24 years later, he says, by next year this time, you're going to be playing Carnegie Hall. So this is what I'd like you to do, chop off your fingers. I'm not trying to be gross, I'm not trying to be crude. It's just a really odd area for God, perhaps. Speaking when the guy is going to have to be a father and he has to look and say somewhere in this they're going to have to try one more time to have this baby. But, or is it? Please hear me. For 24 years there's a promise sitting upon Abraham or Abram. For 24 years he has left the world that he knew. It's unfamiliar now. He's living in a land that's not his own and he knows that. He's living in a land that will be promised to him, but he won't be able to actually cash in on that. That will be for his kids that he doesn't have yet. Now he's 99 years old. What do you think has happened over those 24 years? How do you survive? How do you emotionally make it through those times when God's made this promise that now seems completely unrealistic? I mean, it makes no sense at all. Do you wall up your heart? you seal it up so that you really don't let anything kind of in at this point? And you say, you know, somehow God will be the God of the most of His promises. And God says, I want you to cut open the most tender and personal part of you so you can be vulnerable again. And can I say that from this point on, the vast, vast, vast majority of times that God will actually say the word in the Old Testament will be about your heart, which every one of us has. Because this is what happens within our walks. As we hear these promises, and we know they're out there, the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. How many of us have even been near the gates of hell lately? And we know that God's promised us freedom. He's promised us the abundance of joy. He's promised us abject innocence. He's promised us abundant life. Each one of those things, there's a requirement. We'd never hunger, we'd never thirst. If we walk in Him, if we, put, if we trust in Him, if we believe in Him, we forget about the part that's our side of it. We just want to cash in on His. It's sort of like we just want to cash in on His promises. But He says, I need you to cling to me if that's going to happen. And somewhere down the line, we learn how to wall our hearts up. And as we learn to wall our hearts up, God's like, you know what? I need the rest of the world to know that you are not in a place where you're not, where you're, you don't feel me. You don't want to, you don't, you're just going to sort of make this a business relationship. God's not into a, into a business relationship with you. When you gave your life to Christ, it was not a merger It was Him saving you, making you His bride. 
Does that make sense? So it makes sense to me why God would pick that, even though I'm really not happy. Praise God it happens to us when we're kids. Here's my question. What chapter did God give circumcision to Abraham? Okay, thank you. Let me ask one more time. Now that the, now that the honor students have given you your answer. What chapter did God give Abraham circumcision? 17. What chapter did God declare Abraham righteous? What chapter did God declare Abraham righteous? What chapter did God give him circumcision? Which one happened first? The righteousness or the circumcision? Righteousness. So did God declare Abraham righteous before or after he was circumcised? Before. Do you get that? By the time we get to Rome, they're saying you're not righteous until you're circumcised. And you can see Paul saying, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Let's see what Scripture says. Isn't it wonderful we have examples of guys that will say, before you build on your wonky doctrine for a second, let's check and see what the Scripture says to it. Because according to Scripture, that doesn't play out. And I love how freeing the Scripture is. Because the moment I get into the Scripture, I'm like, wow, okay, I kind of get the point here that these people are a bit off-center with this. Here's the best part. When God declared Abraham righteous, I want to remind you, that conversation started with Abraham trying to make a deal with God about his oldest slave, the one born in his house. It wasn't like Abraham was even performing at a really crack level to God, and God said, wow, you're so close, let's just call you righteous. He was trying to bargain with God. Do you get that? Well, thank you, Abraham. I think you've done what was necessary here. Well, let's call up our second witness, shall we? I'd like to call to the stand King David. Dun, dun, dun. And the crowd goes, Can he do that? Where Abraham is mentioned by name with the name Abram for what it's worth, 281 verses. King David is mentioned, 971 verses. The guy's gonna got some big press. And David comes to the stand as a sweet psalmist. And he says, David, you seem to know about the blessedness of a man who knows righteousness as a gift. Could you explain it to us? And David says, Woo! Good morning. Because there is a quote here that is given. Verse 7 of Romans says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. David, David, where can we find that text? Because you clearly wrote that. And David says, let me tell you about a situation in my life. Turn to Psalm 32. And you'll see that what I just did, by the way, was appropriate for the text. Just want to warn you. David said, there was a time in my life I was supposed to be out in battle. It said it was the spring, the time when the kings go out in battle, and I was a king. Put that math together. That's simple. I should have been out in battle, but I sent Joab, 2 Samuel 11. And I sent Joab into battle, and though I was supposed to be out there, I wasn't. Instead, I was lounging. I was actually not in the battle anymore because I was busy getting comfortable. And as I was busy getting comfortable, I kind of took a little lounge out after a little nap. And I looked outside, and there was a girl bathing on her roof. Now, you might think, oh my goodness, what a hussy. But understand a couple things. First of all, how do you heat water in those days? Second of all, if the king's supposed to be in battle and her roof's up, the only person that could see her would be the king who wasn't supposed to be there. Especially since the gal's husband was in battle and he was out there in the, in the fray. And he sees the gal and he tells the guys, who is she? 
She's your bodyguard's wife. Any of you think, okay, maybe another one would be a good idea. Your bodyguard's wife. Anne happens to be the granddaughter of your chief counselor. Straight two. And her name, Batsheva, means daughter of a covenant. Strike three. And he's like, get her for me anyways. So he does, and he lays with her. And then she becomes pregnant. Sends a little note out. By the way, David, I have a baby. And boy, things have gotten sick. David says, you know what? I've got I to handle this. I know what we'll do. Let's get her husband home. Let's have him spend some time and we can just pretend it's his. But if he comes out a little ruddy and playing a harp, well, we'll just say that's coincidence. And this guy is so noble, this bodyguard, Uriah, that he gets home, he comes to David, and then he goes, oh, go home, be with your wife. And the guy sleeps in the, in the, in the, like right at the front door. And then David goes, why didn't you go be with your wife? He's like, all my men, all the men are in battle right now. How could I go and lay with my wife? And there's a part of me that thinks David's probably thinking, he said, well, I did. Well, you know, and it's like, oh man, so I can't. And so he gets, he gets the guy and he's like, hey, cool, come on over. Let's hang out another day. I'll send you back. And he gets the guy drunk. And then he goes, now go home to your wife. And the guy doesn't even make it home on that day. And now David's like, oh, this is getting worse. Now what do I do? So he sends the guy back to the fray with a letter in his hand that was his own letter of assassination that says, hey, get to the heatest, the hottest part of the, the battle and right when you get there, step back and let this guy get drilled. Let him die. Joab, who's already a bit of a hothead, the commander of David's army at this point, gets the letter and he's like, oh, and he smells a rat. And so, but he's also the kind of guy that really likes a big fight. So he gets into places where he shouldn't be. And he gets into one of those places where he's right at the wall. A really lousy place to fight because they have archers that shoot from the wall. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why you don't get close to a wall. And he does, and the guy gets killed. And then he goes, and Joab says, he sends a guy back to David. And he says, just tell him this. Tell him a bunch of guys died because we were in the wall. But don't worry about it because the guy you wanted dead is dead. And David reads the letter and he goes, oh... We'll tell him that the sword takes some people on one side and he takes them on the other. Don't worry, it'll be okay, buddy. And David thinks he's gotten away with it. And there he is sitting there. But inside he's decaying. You see, it tells us that whoever seeks to cover his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. So though on the outside you might have thought, because at this point now the guy is dead, and David's like, you know what? I've made an official decree out of the kindness of my heart that poor widow that was killed, her husband was killed in battle, I'll just make her my wife. And everyone's like, that's so sweet. What a kind guy David is. Look at how nice of a guy he is. But David inside knows he's a loser. Now listen, listen, listen. This is so important. Every person around him is a yes man. They're like, it's okay, David. It's okay. You know, you did what was right. When he said, go get the girl, we don't read anyone saying, excuse me, but that girl's married. No wonder why he said later, against you and you alone have I sinned. And you go, uh-huh. Haven't you sinned against the woman and her husband, against the nation? He's like, yeah, but here's the difference. Nobody else would say it. And here's the deal. Please hear me. If you sin in the rest of the world, every other person, even those that call themselves Christians, tell you it's not a sin, that doesn't mean God's going to change his mind. So finally this prophet comes up, Nathan. And Nathan, by the way, Nathaniel means a gift of God. So Nathaniel, Nathaniel comes up, doing something like hiding behind this rope here. Nathaniel comes up and he goes, he goes, hey, I got a story to tell. And he kind of goes up and he, and, he wants to, and he wants to talk to the king for a second. So he says, hey, king, I got this story to tell you. And remember, the king's always, he's, he's still, remember, he's putting on the show that everything's cool, right? And remember, the king's got to make these judgment calls on every case. So he goes, here's the deal. There was this guy and he was really, really rich on this side. He just had so much stuff, except a pen. Okay, there you go. He had so much stuff. And then there was this guy on this side, super poor, had one little sheepy, sheepy, like a daughter, treated it like a daughter, went into his house at night, fluffy. 
rich guy had someone that came over to visit him. And he said, we need to have a feast. And he looked at all of his sheep and went, nah, let's have fluffy burgers. And he kills this guy's fluffy. David erupts because there's still a sense he still has to make judgments as a king. And he looks and goes, what? This can't be. Let's give him the full force of the law. The full force of stealing someone's thing is fourfold. That guy should die and pay fourfold. Maybe pay the fourfold first, then kill him. And Nathaniel says at that point, oh, that's a really interesting judgment, king, because that judgment's for you. Did you have all this stuff? Why did you have to take Fluffy from your bodyguard? She's yours now. And David says, I've sinned. He says, well, don't worry, king. You won't, you won't die. But you are going to pay fourfold. You can go and be seated. Thank you. And it's interesting. If you follow what happens in the rest of 2 Samuel, he has a brother that will rape one of his half-sisters. Then he'll be killed by that sister's brother. Then that boy will actually, and first he'll lose a child, the child that she was pregnant with in the first place. Then there'll be this rape, this, this brother will be killed, then Absalom will be going, and he'll go and try to take over the throne, for which then David will have to flee for his life. And then even after all of that, another son will be raised up to actually declare himself king, and there will be your fourfold, you'll watch it happen. But at least he won't die. And you would say, wow, that's God getting tight. Here's the crazy part. David would say in Psalm 51, Be merciful to me. My soul cries unto you. And he speaks about what his state was like while he was, on, while he was still trying to hide it all. Listen, sometimes God will bust you for you because he knows what's happening to you right now and you're trying to hide it. And after all of that, after Nathan nails him, David is sitting here and goes, and after all of that, I wrote a song. You could imagine the song would be like, I'm such a jerk. And who is that guy think he is? No, nothing like that. Listen to the psalm. Psalm 32. Listen to this. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whom spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. And Selah was a time when the musicians took over where it was like he dropped a bomb on you and you should think about it. So he'd be like saying, think about that. So let me ask you something, beloved. Do you know what this means? Have you ever been there? We've been so busy trying to tell everyone else you're okay, but you're not okay. You're hiding sin that you know needs to be dealt with. And you're trying to tell God it's okay, but you know He isn't agreeing. You're trying to play the game that everything's alright when you know it's not alright. And you're drying up. You're decaying. You're turning into nothing. Listen, praise God it doesn't end there. Then He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. That's what it took. All of a sudden, everything starts to change with this. To acknowledge sin means that I actually told God, you know what, God, you're right. I'm wrong. That's sin. Listen to that again. I simply said, you're right. I'm wrong. That's sin. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. He goes, think about that. I confessed and you forgave. Let me give you a Hebrew word I think you might actually remember. The word in the Hebrew for forgive. Are you ready? The word is Nasa, N-A-S-A. And it literally means to lift off, like Nasa. Can you remember that? Like, five seconds to take off. Four, three, two, one. You were nervous, weren't you? 
follow me on this. To lift off is what it means to forgive. And the word in the Hebrew is? What is it? Nassau. Because I confessed my sin to you, and you said, blast off. That's what he said. Listen to this. Verse 6, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in the time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near them. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Think about that. Could you imagine? One song of deliverance is pretty awesome. Surrounded with songs of deliverance? Think about that. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed, bit and bridled. They won't come near you otherwise. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. What's the next thing say? Woo! It's right here in the text. Shout for joy, you upright heart. Let me ask you something. Have any of you really been forgiven? I mean, really forgiven. The floodwaters of your guilt has come around you. Well, here you go. One, two, three. Woo! Come on now. If you've actually been forgiven and set free, if you actually call out to a God and you are surrounded by your guilt and hell owned you, but you are no longer hell, uh, uh, you are no longer owned by hell and He has delivered you because you cried out, you acknowledged your sin to Him. You were drying up and dying and He set you free and He has set you free. What do you have to say about that? Okay, one more time. If the Lord God is the one who reached into your guilt and now has set you to a place where you are a new creation and you can say, I am forgiven, what do you have to say about that? That's the point. Thank you very much, David. Your witness. And that's the case here. When David was declared right, what state was he in? He was a miserable, rotten sinner. That's what he was. He was not close. He was not remotely close. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a lazy, wicked, insolent man like most of us, if not all of us. And God made him right. Now, Having developed that just a little bit, let's just read Romans 4 one more time, shall we? And tell me if it makes sense. Romans 4. Here's Paul's closing argument, now that we've gone and analyzed our witnesses. What shall we say then? That Abraham our father is found according to the flesh. If Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. What chapter was that in? What chapter was that in? Beautiful. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as that. If you work, it's owed you. That's why we like something with works in it. We feel someone owes us. But to him who doesn't work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness or for righteousness. What about David? Just as David describes the blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Could you imagine God declaring David right because of his works? What works exactly were those that God would have declared David right for? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does the blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Well, if God only gave the blessedness to the circumcised, how did Abraham get it in 15, right? Or upon the uncircumcised? Well, we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Well, when? When he was circumcised or uncircumcised? What chapter was circumcision in? What chapter? What chapter was he declared righteous in? 15. So which one came first? Righteousness. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith in which he had, while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be deputed to, imputed to them also. He's the father of circumcision, for those who are not only of the circumcision, but also those who, are the step, who walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham had, while he was still even uncircumcised. 
So the promise that he would be heir to the world of the world was not to Abraham or to a seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For those that are of the law are heirs, well then faith is made void, promise of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. But where there's no law, there's no transgression. Therefore it's of faith, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As I've written, I made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, that's God, who gives life to the dead, who calls things that did not exist as though they did, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Not being weak in the faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was roughly 100 years old, he was 99, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And here's a great definition for faith here, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Second to last point here. You look at this and you think, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I look at this and I realize it says here that he didn't waver in his faith. And the skeptic might look at that and go, ha, 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 look at the problem with the Bible, because according to the Bible, apparently they've never been to Genesis. Because isn't in Genesis, it's like, this is my sister. That sounds like a wavering of faith. Well, what about take my oldest servant? Doesn't that sound like wavering in faith? Hello, here's the problem. If God were to mention any of those things here, the Bible would be inaccurate. And I'll tell you why. Because the person who says he didn't waver in his faith apparently hasn't been to Genesis, I might say, well, apparently you haven't been to the cross. Because at the cross, something radical happened. Psalm 103.12, God says that as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgression. Isaiah 43.25 says, I am he, even I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31.34 says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It says in Micah 7.18 that he doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. And in 1 John 1.9 it says, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now listen, if God really has taken all of Abraham's sins and forgiven them, what's the Hebrew word for forgive? Then what did he do with his sins? He lifted them off. Now God looks through the lens of the cross and he says, I don't see any sin on that man right now, none do you? And he says, oh, I've read Genesis and God says, but you haven't been to the cross. And at the cross, God has washed away. How many of Abraham's sins? Let me ask you, how many sins of you have God washed away at the cross? All of them. All of them. What about the ones you've yet to commit? Yep. All means all. All doesn't mean anything but all. So when someone tries to play that game, listen. Because the enemy will try to do that with you too. Amina, remember that you said you never do this again and you, you did it again? I'd say, well, that's funny. Try that with God. See what he has to say. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. There's one area. If you were playing Trivial Pursuit, you could actually get the wedge instead of God. And that's the area of your sin. Because you're more of an expert on it than he is now. Because he chooses to remember it no more. And then he goes, let me try to remind you. And God goes, it's not here. It's blotted out. It's as if it never lived. Isn't that beautiful? You know, the crazy thing is, I come before God, if you're anything like me, I come before God and I try to remind him. God, you know, I knew that I'd never want to do this again. And here I am standing before you with that same attitude, with that same mindset. You know, when, when Peter says, so if our brother sins against us, should we forgive him seven times? Think about how goofy that is, because here's the crazy part. If your brother sins against you and you forgive him, every time is the first time. You get that? So you're like, hey, look, at, I've already forgiven you seven times. You can't say that. Because you haven't lifted it off like you lifted it off and held it. It's like, okay, uh, that's one, that's two, that's three. That's not forgiveness anymore. That's like you making a pie to throw at him again. If we're really going to forgive, and by the way, can I just say this? It's not humanly possible for you to forgive. Be warmed and filled. But the God who forgave everything lives inside of you if you've accepted his gift. And if he lives inside of you, he can forgive through you. Our last thing, let's close this up. Last three verses. Now it was not written for, our, for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. 
And this is, this is his specific message now to us. God knew, Paul knew, that we would be reading this 2,000 years later. This wasn't just written for you guys there in Rome. It wasn't just written for Abraham back, you know, <coughs> a couple thousand years before this. It was written for you guys in London in 2013 that it was imputed to him. Because it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Listen to this statement. He was delivered up because of our offenses. The only reason why Jesus went to the cross is because we deserve to. And he was raised because of our justification. By the time that Jesus was raised and the new life that he offers us, we could stand and this could be our testimony now. What if the Lord were to say to Shirley or to Bruno or to Devin? What if he was to say to Hugo, Hugo, when you walk home tonight, look up. Now in London, let's be honest, if we could see seven stars, that's pretty much a miracle. But let's just say one of those days when he pulls away and we can actually see. Now we live up in the Barnets, and you can actually, every once in a while, see a whole lot of stars up there. And you kind of look up there and God says, now you want to count those? If you look up and you count those, you'll be able to count how many lives are going to be radically touched by what I do through you. There'll be that much fruit. And he goes, and if you want to look down, go to the beach. And when you go down and you look at the beach and you actually see all that sand, count those and you'll be reminded how many times I'm thinking about you right now. So no matter what direction you want to look, if you want to look straight ahead, you're going to see a myriad, a sea of people. And he's going to say, every one of those has the same problem. Every one of them has the same cure. And their problem is sin and their cure is Jesus. No matter where you look, you could be reminded of me. He was delivered up because we delivered. We deserve to be delivered up. And he was raised up so that we could be called innocent. Completely clean on our ledger. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, how much of this testimony can you give? Maybe you can give David's. And that's where it starts, right? The testimony that says, Oh, it is so blessed to be forgiven. Where that shout should happen more than in this room. This shout should happen out there where the only time anyone hears anyone shouting is when they're either about to hit someone or because someone's about to score. Can I just say, God hit and God scored and it's lasted eternally. On the other side of that, can you actually give Abraham's testimony? Because Jesus said, listen, I've come that you'd bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Not a single one of you are not to bear fruit. Every one of you are to bear fruit. But you've got to cling to him to do it. And as you do, God has amazing plans. I do honestly believe, as I look at your faces, and please understand, I'm not like just saying this. I'm being genuinely honest. I, I think God has plans for you that are so ridiculously crazy that if he were to tarry 40 years from now and we all live that long, we could look back and go, wow, and this isn't even it yet. What God's going to do through Mary, no one in her family, including her, could possibly imagine. What God wants to do through Annie. And you know why? Because we're already seeing the hint of that. We're seeing the first fruits of that. What God wants to do with Allie? Beyond our wildest imagination. And you know what? All he's asking is to trust. He say, why hasn't it happened yet? It's like, hey, it's 24 years for Abraham. Now, I'm not telling you that's the case, but can I just say this? The challenge for you is to keep your heart cut open and vulnerable. You cannot say you trust anyone you will not be vulnerable to. Think about that. So if you haven't accepted the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you that opportunity. If you have accepted the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to invite you today to start walking and being a living shout when you walk out these doors to radiate. Because there's a world out there desperate for the blessedness that only you have. You pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege of this time. I thank you for the gift, Lord, of being able to assemble in this room. Oh, we won't call it chilly. We're aware of that. But also, Lord, we also recognize that it's a room that's safe. But tonight, Lord, you've, you've impacted my heart again, and I want to thank you for that. 
And you've reminded me through men that are heroes of the faith in the times past. And Lord, let's just, I just want to be honest with you. If you just told a guy that was 25 that he'd be the father of many nations and he believed you and then you gave him a bunch of kids, Lord, that would be, that'd be cool and all. But the fact that it was so impossible is what makes him a hero. And Lord, here we are in positions where you're going to make some of us heroes because there are things that are going to appear impossible that, and, and they would be if it weren't for you. But Lord, you've told us that with man, what is impossible, there is nothing impossible with you. Nothing. Nothing is impossible. You're too smart, you're too powerful to have anything impossible. And so Lord, I, I just pray, first of all, for believers in this room, myself included, Lord, that, you would, that you'd make us something more than just Greek students. Where we just have more information and we could recite poetry and we could give theorems. But Lord, that our hands would be dirtied with the trades that you're building and the spiritual gifts that you've given us so that lives could be impacted, including the lives in here, Lord. I know that if we are to exercise what you've ordained every one of us to be, we all would be further blessed by each other as we serve in the ways that you've called us to. So Lord, I pray for that. And I pray, Lord, for us that you would ignite us in a way, Lord, that we would have such a heart for each other first and then the lost second. Lord, that, that people would know that there's a family to come home to here. And so, Lord, I pray for every one of us that you would give us more than just a David experience. And even if the whole world wants to take a vote on what isn't sin anymore, Lord God, you're still going to be true and every man a liar. But Lord, give us beyond that now to that place of the Abraham call where we'd be willing to, to forsake, Lord, our comforts and our familiarities and our current identities, Lord, as we know them like Abraham did to follow you and to trust that you would make us fruitful because clearly what Abraham was following was a God that promised fruitfulness. And you've ordained fruitfulness for each of us. Lord, make us fruitful. That's what we want. And Lord, we know that that may mean you may be calling us out of all kinds of things we're comfortable with. But to do that, Lord, I pray, give us the energy and the drive because it's your spirit who works within us to will to do and to do within us for your good pleasure. Create that so overpoweringly, Lord, that it will overcome our own weaknesses, our complacencies, our latencies, our apathies, Lord, our sluggishness, our laziness, or whatever it be, or even our lack of faith. Overcome that to make us the people you've ordained, the parts of the body functioning fully, that your body here would function fully. But we start with this. Jesus, that you were delivered up for our sins. Because of our sins, you died on the cross. And so we openly confess right now that Jesus, you are our Savior because you died on the cross because we deserve that punishment because the wages of sin is death. And you died there and then you rose again on the third day just like Scripture promised so that you could give us a brand new life, a life that is continually and perpetually made new. And so we say yes, Jesus. We declare you as our Savior. We declare you as our Lord. We declare you Father as our adopted King. And Lord, in that... We are your children. And so, Lord, have us now. We are now the agent of your reinvention. Do with us in whatever you want. And we just say we're yours and we love you. So have us now. And if you agree, I ask you to simply say, Amen. Thank you, Lord. Bless, bless, bless this precious fellowship, Lord. Bless them with the power of your spirit. Bless them with the joy that comes by your presence. And, Lord, just ignite us to serve you as you ordain. In Jesus' name. Amen.